Well, it's good to see you guys. I'm glad to be back. It's been a long journey over to Indonesia and back 50 hours on a plane. Any volunteers? There's a, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> so uh, we're glad that you guys, uh, that we had that opportunity and um, praising God for uh, just our guest speaker last week who walked us through this stuff. But fascinating, if you looked at that photo uh, there that we presented, it, it shows kind of a group, a different set of people there as we were just, uh, they're all friends of, of our friend there in Indonesia. And uh, one of the conversations that began to erupt was with the, the gentleman that was on the right of the picture, um, kind of just peeking his head out there. And uh, he has uh, been born and raised in Indonesia, and uh, he's been a Muslim all of his life. So we were just, just kind of asking him some questions about how they pray and uh, in Indonesia and what that's all about. And do they have to go to the mosque every time there's a call to prayer? or is that? And he's just telling me, no, they put out their own prayer mats, they do things like that. And then we we're talking about what is the seriousness of those prayers and how do they teach their kids to do that? And are you born the, into this? Is this something you choose? So just working through all these various pieces. And as he's discussing this with me, he gets into some conversation where he starts telling me, yeah, he's read the Bible and he's read some of the, the Vedas of the, um, of the uh, Hindus and he's looked at all these different things and, and, he's, and he's trying to learn, he's trying to understand all the different religions. And so I asked, hey, do you have any questions for me? And he didn't because I don't think in that culture it was appropriate in front of everybody to ask those questions. But later he would contact our friend over there and he would, uh, and he would say, hey, I would love to have a further conversation. I have a lot of questions. I'm just really curious about some things. And we were already on the plane headed home. So we didn't get to engage in that way, but we are surely excited that our friend is going to be able to open that door and begin those conversations. And, and it just reminded me that it doesn't matter whether it's in Indonesia, whether it was on another Island of Indonesia, whether it's up in the mainland of, of China, or maybe it's out in the middle of India or whether it's somewhere in the middle East, there are people that are sitting in their rooms that are, that are devoted to a particular religion. They're devoted to a, a particular God. And yet they are long Longing to know the true God. They're longing because they see the hypocrisy in some of their leadership. They understand the, the, the distance that they feel between them and God. And they're wondering and curious and hoping that somebody will come and bring more information. Maybe it's about Jesus or maybe it's about the God of the creation. But they're longing for this and they're seeking him, but they just don't know if he's going to deliver. They just don't know if he's going to meet them where they're at. This has happened throughout history. In fact, in, I want you to imagine with me a dusty road out in the middle of a very uh, kind of a Middle Eastern desert. It's a road where there's very little water and there's a chariot on, the, on it and the clopping of the horse's hooves as it marches along, pulling this chariot forward as a man is reading aloud some ancient scriptures in Aramaic or, or even or Greek. And as he's speaking, the, the man's still guiding this chariot down and the other... The this kind of official is sitting in the back as he's reading these things to the guards that are surrounding this very chariot as they're marching through that desolate area. And this man is pondering and wondering about this God that he so desperately wants to know that he's just gone to Jerusalem to worship. And he's asking, does this God even care? Is he even going to connect with me? Is this God really, really just pushed me away? I believe the same thing is true here in Corona in various homes and places around us, there are those who are sitting 
in their houses today, they've been looking at the Bible. Maybe they've read passages of the Bible. They've been examining the internet, trying to discover more about Christianity. And they're, they look at their lives and they know they're not perfect. They understand they've had struggles. They, maybe they've been involved in, in harming themselves or harming other people in some fashion. And they just wonder, could God ever forgive me? Could God ever really care about me? Does God really know that I'm here? And these seekers surround us. And they desperately, truly seek. It always leads me back to a conversation we would have in seminary. And only seminarians, people sitting around in theology classes, ask these kind of questions. But I can still remember sitting in my seminary classes, and we would talk about this one question. And when it comes to eternity, when it comes to heaven and hell, will God, not ex- will God deny people who truly desire to know him? Will he send some people to hell who otherwise would have longed and loved to know Jesus? Or does he accept everyone? Will he reach all those people? And this is a big question. You know, that we're not talking about people who want to go to heaven because they think heaven's this great place and this awesome party they all want to be at because I can do whatever I want. No, we're talking about the real, the biblical heaven where God is king and, and it means to be near him. We're not talking about just any invention of God that people have come to, some Aristotelian idea or, or some other religion's belief of God. We're talking about the, the creator God, the God of the Bible. If somebody longs to be with that God and they long for that eternity to be near him, is God going to reject him or is God going to find him. Does he really seek out the seekers? And that's really the question we're going to be looking at today is as you and I grab our Bibles, he wants you to pull it open to Acts chapter eight is found on page 917 in the, in the seats. If you want to grab one of those Bibles under the chairs there, or you can open it to the app and you can join us there. Uh, we'll have some of the, the scriptures on the page, but you want to have it open because we're going to reference it quite a bit. And what you're opening to is, a, is an ancient book. Uh, the Bible is not one book. It's a collection of old scrolls. In fact, the, these two scrolls that were written by this man, Dr. Luke, he was a physician in the ancient world and traveled around with a church planner named Paul. He had seen so much of church history that an official, a Roman official, actually asked him, would you write down what has happened amongst us? Because he had become a Christian. He wanted to know what happened with Jesus. And so he wrote out the, the, his discovery and his information and his compilation of, the, of what had happened with Jesus and then the next 30 years of church history. And so we had these two combinations, these two scrolls. Today we know them as the Gospel of Luke, and we know it as the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And so we're looking at this 30 years of church history by Dr. Luke, who is an eyewitness. He'll pop up in a few places later. But we've been examining this, and now we come to a section where it's really talking about the Gospel's victory, that it's undefeated, that it cannot be stopped. And in fact, this is the question we're asking. Can the gospel be held back? Can it be stopped by distance, by confusion, so that the seeker can't actually obtain it? They can't actually find it. And it's with this question in our minds that we examine that there's a man, exactly as I described on a desert road, hoping and longing to meet God. And what we have is another man named Philip that we met a few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago who is about to engage. In fact, Philip, the, la- the first time you heard about him, he was invited to be part of the leadership. The church had a difficulty over widows being fed, and uh, he, he was stepped up, and he became somebody who could feed the, the Greek-speaking widows. 
And that would have been his job, except that Saul stepped in and started persecuting the church, spreads the church all over the place so that Philip finds his way down in Samaria and starts preaching and a revival breaks out. Last week, our guest speaker showed us how that worked. And guest speaker, he's a great guy, but uh, he kind of walked us through that process as we examined it. And it's interesting is that now Philip is sitting in the midst of this Samaritan revival and he gets a call from God. And it begins here in verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court of the official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasures. So we have this guy who shows up here in this picture. Um, here's that man I was talking about in the desert place on this road from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a long stretch of desolate road on its way. Gaza is the last stop for water before you go all the way through a 125-mile trek through the Arabian Desert. So you can imagine, this is an important location that they're headed to, sort of like a gas station in the middle of Wyoming, right? You can't find it. It's there. Last stop, gas. No more gas for the rest of the state. You need to get gas now. And so this is the same kind of situation. He's on his way to get this water. He's on his way for his long journey home. And he is a eunuch. If you do anything, I want you to circle that word. It is, the, it is a critical piece of information in the whole of this text. Circle it, highlight it, underline it, whatever you do. But, but mark down a eunuch. He's from the court of Kandiki, which is the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So this is where we kind of stop as we look at this, because what we see in this primary picture is a man who is seeking God. He's out in the middle of this desert place and a man who has been sent to find him. Philip has been sent out to go engage this man. In a very real way, what we're seeing is the answer to our question. Will God seek out those who are seeking him? The answer is yes. God seeks the seeker. God will seek out the seekers of this world. He, is, he has made that a promise in his word over and over. You seek me, you shall find me. If you seek me with all of my heart, he is going to send out after these seekers. Now, this guy is a special kind of seeker, and I think he would resonate with some of us. He's a man who is a eunuch. And a eunuch is in a special condition, as you guys can well attest. He's working for Candace. He, she, is the, um, she is the queen of the Ethiopians. And anybody who would work for a female in the ancient world, especially in royalty, if they were a male, would find that they had been emasculated. Everything downstairs is gone, chopped off and removed. And so now he has no ability to... Um, Mess, uh, mess around with the queen or any of her children or uh, when it comes to a king, any of his, his wife or the harem, the, he is completely able to serve. Now, he has a lot of power. He's a treasurer. He has the, he's probably got a very strong voice with the queen because the person who controls the purse oftentimes controls the country in a lot of ways. Isn't that true? So what we have here is a man of extreme power who longs to be a part of the people of Israel. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship, but he's not allowed to be a Jewish person. He's a God-fearer who has to stand at a distance. And that's because of this verse that is found in the law. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 1. It says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. 
Air One. This is our Air One verse of the day, folks. This is how it's going to, yeah, that ain't going to happen. We, we did set this to song, so your children will know this from our children's ministry. No one whose testicles are cut short. No, that's not, that's not going to happen. This, these are the kind of verses you skip over in children's ministry. But again, absolutely critical. The junior hire never leaves the man. That's just how it works. So what you have here is this very real sense. Now, this is a radical statement. Most men didn't choose to become eunuchs. They were raised as little boys, and at some point in their youth, they were, they were told, this is what you're going to do with your life. Or they had been captured like uh, in a war, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were captured and made eunuchs to serve in the Babylonian court. And there's, they're the similar way. So when God says, nobody who is put in this position gets to be part of the assembly of the Lord, he's saying, you don't get to come to the temple. You don't get to come be a part of the worship in the midst of God. You're out. Now, I'll tell you what, to us Americans, that just doesn't seem fair. Are you serious? God's going to kick some people out, even if they didn't mean to do this, even if they didn't choose to do this? What's up with that? Why would God remove some people and let other people in? And we can feel like this is absolutely unfair until we understand the context of what the Bible is teaching when it comes to Israel. When you stop and look at what the picture of Israel is, you wind up with an image of what it looks like in the kingdom of God. God's intention was to reveal a perfect people. And the closer you got to him, the more perfect they should be in morality, in physicality, in their cleanliness, in in everything. And so it starts that, hey, look, the average average Gentile, like me and you, that can't that isn't Jewish, we kind of had to hang out of the outskirts of the of the court. We were we were kind of considered foreigners in the land. We were treated well, but we didn't belong. And maybe we cared about God, and so we came close, but we were never allowed in the actual apparatus of worship. Then Israelites were allowed in, but only the priests were allowed in closer, and only high priest was allowed in the Holy of Holies. And when it came to priests, you couldn't have any any kind of disfigurement on your body at all. You weren't allowed to have, as a high priest, even a nick out of your ear. And they would do all kinds of stuff to each other in the intrigue between the Old and New Testament to kind of figure out how to get new high priests in that they wanted for power struggles. But all of it surrounded this purity code. And what God was intending was to say, when you see my people and you see me, you see a holy people, you see a set apart people, you see a people who are perfect in every way, because this is supposed to be a picture of heaven. No. Did Israel succeed in that? No, not at all. And they worshiped other gods. They looked awful. They brought their, they brought their blind and their lame animals in to sacrifice them. They, they were the complete opposite of what God had intended. And so in this picture of the assembly of the Lord, remember, this is like a picture of what we would not, you and I would today would call utopia. And so I think you and I could resonate with the Ethiopian eunuch a little bit. This is a man who longs desperately to belong to this perfect image of society. He longs to be in the worship of the God who is of perfection and beauty and strength, the creator God, and yet he's kept away. In a real way, he wants to be a part of that society that was described throughout the scriptures as those who would take their plowshares and they would take the swords and turn them into plowshares, that we would take our guns and turn them into ability to make food instead of war. 
that we'd be a people that stood for the, for the poverty and we gave away our goods that they would rise up and we, there was no evil in our midst. We told the truth. There was no lying. Marriages were firm and they never broke. That their children were being raised in this, in this society that knew God and honored their parents. Man, this is the picture of a perfect society in which all of us would long to be a part of, where we didn't view each other by our race, we didn't view each other by our ethnicity, we didn't view each other by our social and economic standing, but we all were equal before the eyes of the Lord. This is the painting of the picture of the kingdom of God. We call it utopia. The Bible called it God's kingdom. They call it what's coming in the new earth and truly, or as we would call it, heaven. And this eunuch longs for that. And he's kept out of the picture, but he's not kept out of the reality. Sure, it didn't seem fair, but it wasn't final. See, what's interesting, if you look down at your verses again, when Philip shows up, it says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, he was seated on a chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, that's weird. Why would a eunuch be reading the prophet of Isaiah, except that there's this passage there that gives him hope? It's found in Isaiah chapter 56. And it reads this way. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. In other words, the faithful eunuchs who are going to follow after me, who love me, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. Here's his, their promise. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. Not, not, in my, not in my assembly, in my house. He's not talking about on earth. He's talking about in eternity. He says, I'm going to give you a place so that you can call yours. It's your home. Your house is in my walls. It's a monument, a name better than the sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, I don't know about you. If I was a eunuch, I'd be reading those words every day. In the treasury, you'd have all this gold, but I would have that embroidered and and put up on a wall. I'd see that line every time I walked in because that was my hope. That while I'm kept out of the picture, I have an opportunity and hope of the reality. But how do I get there? God, I want this. I don't have it. How will I get there? I'm I'm obeying your Sabbaths. I'm showing up. We don't know how he worshiped, but he was able to. But he was longing and he was seeking God. You may be longing for that world where there is no sin, where people stop being racist, where we stop seeing bombs blowing people up, where we stop seeing the mess of just human debris just crushing one another. If you long for that, you're in the right place because that's exactly what heaven is calling for. But how do we get there? How do we have that? Where do we find it? If you know you're not perfect, you know you've got the brokenness, and yet you long for something better, know that God seeks you because he seeks the seekers. He longs to connect with us and Yet the way he does that is in a special way, guys. We are sent to overcome the distance between them and God. We as the church are the ones who are sent out to overcome the distance between those who are seeking God and God himself. In fact, Philip is this picture. Look at it again. Look at verse 26 again down here with me. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that's down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. At that point, most readers from this area would say, Duh. 
course they knew it was a desert place. They knew where these locations were. And this isn't written for us. This was written to highlight the fact this is a desolate location. In fact, what's interesting is you'll notice there's this little number next to the word south in your Bibles. And if you look down at your footnotes, it says, or go about noon. You can translate south or noon as it's the same word in the Greek. And most scholars are like, oh, it's not south. It's, or not noon. It's definitely south. Because nobody's on the road at noon. It's too hot. And I'm like, kind of, that's kind of like the point, isn't it? If this man's alone... In the middle of nowhere, he's, he's so far from everybody else. It's almost like describing his distance from God. And God says, you know what, Philip? I want you to go there. Now, Philip doesn't, doesn't know what he's going to find down there. It's a desolate road. It's, it's in the south. So he, but he obeys. He heads out. And then we see that he meets this guy. And then God says in verse, 20, or in verse 29, God speaks to him by the Spirit and says, Philip, go over and join this chariot. And here's the thing. God is sending him specifically to this seeker who is longing to know God. And, you know, I believe God is sending us as a church to the seekers surrounding us in our, in, our, in our area, in Corona, overseas, in Indonesia, wherever we go. And we need to be getting out there with this message. And here's the thing. Some of us are going like, well, well then God needs to talk to me. He needs to show me when to go. Because, and I agree. I think the question for most of us as a church is, are we listening? Are we listening? You know, the Spirit of God shows and tells them, go there. The angel's like, go down to this place. Are we as a church listening to what God is calling us to do and calling us to engage in? Look, I don't think we need an angel to show up and tell us to get moving. We have the words of Jesus. Jesus actually told us, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all that I commanded you. Hey, as the Father sent me, so I send you. In fact, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you so that you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He didn't need to say it again. We have our marching orders. We need to go. And that's exactly the the thing that Philip's doing. You see, I have to set up a, a, a dangerous context here. The danger is when I tell you, are we listening, is that some of us get into this situation where we kind of go like, all right, I'm going to sit in my house and I'm going to wait till God tells me where to go. And I'm going to go reach that person and something miraculous is going to happen. It's going to be awesome. And so we just sit around waiting. Now, God? Now, God? It's like we ate pizza and we're like, oh, I got to go to Panera. You know, it's like, no, that's, is that how this works? We're supposed to work with our whims? I don't really think that's completely how this works because notice Philip is already going. Philip didn't wait to be told to go. He had already come to Samaria. He had already been involved in a revival. He was already preaching the gospel. He was already obeying. Then God began to speak to him and pointing him specifically where to go. You have to be already on the game, already working forward in order for us to see what God is doing. It's much like this thing called Pokemon Go. Anybody know what Pokemon Go is? Anybody ever heard of it? You ever played it? Okay, you can admit that if you want. And that, uh, So Pokemon Go, for those of you who don't know, is an augmented reality game. And it's based on this, uh, this, game called, this card game called Pokemon and television show where there's these little cute little pocket monsters that you, you, know, you throw a ball at and you collect them and they fight each other and you're supposed to care for them like pets and stuff. Really, really Japanese thing. Anyway, so this, this game is out called Pokemon Go. And what you do is you can literally take your phone and you, and you find little creatures out there and you capture them on your phone, but it's in our world right around us. In fact, we're a Pokestop right out front. Kind of interesting. And so the weirdest thing that ever happened to me 
was I came to the crossings one day, and I don't remember when this was, about a year ago, and I pulled in with my car, and I'm looking around, and I have to be really careful where I'm driving, because for some reason, there are like hordes of human beings walking across the parking lot like this. And I'm talking 40 to 50 in a clump, walking together, moving in the same direction, moving down the, the corridors past the fountain and all this stuff, all of them doing the same thing. And I'm going, what is happening? It's like a zombie apocalypse. This is scary. And as they're doing this, I realize, oh, it's Pokemon Go. They all gather in these large clumps to fight this really big boss in hopes that they're going to be able to capture it. And so all these people are doing the same thing. Funniest thing was I saw a couple of our, our own staff members there doing that. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? So, But what's interesting is what I see is the crossings. But what they saw was a battlefield. They saw all these little creatures to collect and all these different things, all because they had the game Pokemon Go running on their phone. Guys, it's the same thing for us. If we just listened to the fact that Jesus told us to go, we'd be aware of the whole world around us that God is working in people's lives that he is drawing them out. He is leading them to an opportunity to hear about him. They're longing for a utopia. They're longing for the kingdom of God. They're hoping for it and they're seeking for it in all the wrong places because they don't know where to look because they're longing for our God, but they didn't ever connect the dots that this is what God gives us in Jesus Christ. And he sends me and he sends you, if you're a Christian or following Jesus Christ, out these doors, out of our homes to go bring that message to them. But we have to have... That app of God's life, of God's go on and be looking around. Then he points us, then he leads us. And it's not like always where it's just a prompting. In fact, I have a friend who described, it, uh, described a certain scenario that I would agree was very similar. He had, uh, received, he had been trying to get into a, a food distribution company. And so he had received an email about when his interview was. And so, you know, he started put it on his calendar. And then like the next day got a second email. But it was to go to the next day, uh, not the day that he was given. So he was confused. Like, I got two uh, interview times. What do I do? You're called. And they're like, well, just show up at the second one. And so he showed up at the second one. Came into the room where the pool was, sat down next to one of the guys, and, and instead of getting on his phone, he figured, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to connect with people. And so he started talking to the gentleman next to him. The gentleman was a Muslim, and he started asking him questions. Hey, do you, do you follow Jesus? And so they started talking about Jesus and, and the Quran and, and the differences there. And as he's talking about that, he started introducing him to the thoughts about how, what Jesus leads him to and what he did for us. And he forgave her sins. This guy was like, whoa, really? I'm super curious about this. And he built a relationship right in that room until that man was called in for his interview. Came out, gave him a high five, they exchanged numbers, and they left. To this day, they continue to talk. What's interesting for my friend is he walks into the door, sits down, and they go, um, so, sir, uh, you were supposed to be here yesterday. Why are you here today? He's like, well, we got this. I got an email. It told me to show up. And he's like, well, that's not, that, wasn't, that shouldn't have happened. We don't know why that happened. And sometimes you don't know why you're given what you're given, but God's setting up an appointment. Had he gone in that room thinking, um, this is just life, he could have opened his phone and just did whatever he wanted to do. He could have read a book while he waited for his interview, but he took the opportunity as if God might be doing something. And lo and behold, God was. You know, even Greg Laurie, a guy who evangelizes like crazy, in his book on evangelism says, I don't get God poking me and telling me, go that way. He says, no, I'm just taking the opportunities. He says, the closest I've ever gotten to that, he says, is, is the time I was in Nordstrom's. I love this story. It's like I went into the bathroom and I sat down in the stall and suddenly somebody said, hi. 
Now, if you're a guy, you know that's wrong, right? That uh, breaks every ethical code on the planet. So Greg, being polite, simply goes, uh, hi. He's like, so you got something for me? And he's like, like what? He's like, I don't know. You got some drugs or something for me? He's like, no, but I got something better for you. He's like, well, what? He's like, I, I got Jesus Christ. And the guy goes, oh, I already tried that, man. I don't need that stuff. And he's like, oh, really? Well, where'd you go to church? He's like, Harvest Christian Fellowship. <laughs> Greg Laurie goes, oh, man, God must love you because he puts your pastor in the stall right next to you instead of the drug dealer. And the guy, like, you know, he said basically he knew who the guy was when he came out because he was the red-faced guy. He met him in the sock aisle and led him back to Christ. But the point was that it didn't, he didn't need God pointing, yelling, screaming, opportunities come if we just take them and are aware. The guy said, hi, he didn't have to respond. I offered drugs. He didn't have to say, well, I got Jesus. It takes boldness, but you got to be in the game. Sometimes God's giving you opportunities, but we have to take those opportunities because he sent us to reach out to the seekers, even when they don't realize it's our God they're seeking. And so he sent us to overcome the distance. He sends us to overcome the confusion. As the story continues, there's a confusion going on in the heart and mind of this, of this Ethiopian eunuch. It goes on, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Hey, I'm confused. Is this about some other guy? Is this about this prophet? How do I understand this text? This is a natural reality for so many in our world. The Bible is is a foreign object from an ancient time. And lots of people are picking up these Bibles. And while you can understand the gospel from them, if you will read them, they aren't getting to the New Testament. They're getting stuck in Old Testament concepts. They're sitting back looking at going, what is God talking about here? Why is he blowing up that city? Oh my gosh, why is he doing this genocide? Why is there slavery? And when they ask these questions, they dive onto the computer to ask what's going on in the Bible. And what they get are skeptics telling them all the reasons why the Bible is corrupt and garbage and all this stuff. I find that fascinating. If you're somebody who's engaged in wondering about the Bible, I'm glad that you're here. Because I really think you're at a better place to ask questions when you come to a church that believes the Bible than a skeptic that doesn't. I mean, let's put it this way. When you go for geographical information about the earth, you don't go to the Flat Earth Society to go find out. Oh, they got all the right answers. They're science deniers. This is brilliant. They're the skeptics about science. You don't go to the skeptics. You go to the official, you go to the people that believe in science. You go to the people that believe that science works. You go to the people that believe the Bible is telling them the truth and are willing to engage in the difficulties within the text. I don't know anybody who does that outside of the conservative evangelical church. See, I I went to a school called Talbot Seminary, evangelical school here in, in, uh, in California. 
what I loved about it is that they walked us through all the liberal argumentation for why the Bible is, is, is broken or this is not the author and all that stuff. All of them. Every book, we went through all these arguments. They gave us all this information. And then we would work through the arguments. They would reveal the weaknesses. And we'd work through all the answers to the arguments for why we can still continue to believe the Bible that we have today is the accurate word of God that's given to us. And, and it's not because we just assumed it was. When we went there, we worked through everything. I have a friend who went to Harvard, and we would sit and talk about these things while he was going there. And we'd bring up all the arguments. I'd heard them all the same. Only then I would give him the rejoinders, the answers. And he's like, no, 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 I've never heard that before. Why are they not teaching you this there? He's like, no. In fact, in the end, when we'd get in those conversations, he'd say, I think you got a better Bible education than I did. Now, he got a Harvard education, so I'm not going to knock that. But when it came to this topic, where he had skeptical teachers, he got all the skepticism and none of the rejoinders. I think if you go somewhere, you don't go run after the skeptics to give you answers about your questions. The questions are real. What in the world is this genocide doing in the Bible? What in the world is this slavery doing in the Bible? Those are real questions. But do we understand the context that brings answers to the questions? Or do we bring our American context and drop it into an ancient world? Which, by the way, I think is a little arrogant. And so what we do is I want to, I want to encourage you. You're the church. You believe this. Know the word of God. Know your Bible. Understand what it's saying. Have an opportunity to take that information and move it. That's exactly what Philip does. In fact, it says that he goes on. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. He could go from this text and go into Jesus Christ. In fact, here's the text he was working from. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. He was getting his way over to 56 where he could, um, you know, look at what's going to come to the eunuch. And so he's wondering how he's going to get there. And here's this text. He says, he was despised and rejected by men. And Philip goes, this is Jesus this guy, Jesus Christ, who grew up and was crucified, he was the one who was despised and rejected by many. He was rejected by all of the people of Israel. He was rejected by the leadership. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as from, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's what happens when someone's crucified. We wouldn't have to explain much more than that. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. He bore our sins like a sacrificial lamb. Oh, I know what that is, I just came back from worshiping in Jerusalem, giving a sacrificial lamb. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. We're after our own selves, our own thinking, our own, our own gods. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This is the very text he was reading. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So he's killed for our sins. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. 
crucified between two criminals, buried in a rich man's tomb. Although he had done no violence, he was sinless and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was hit the will of the Lord to crush him. He has made, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. As a man who's died, cut out of the world, see his offspring. Except now we can tell him, listen, he was risen from the dead. Three days later, we saw him. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And at this point, he explained the gospel to this man. He looked at him and says, I know you long to be a part of the community and you can't, but now Jesus has come to heal that. Where you are imperfect, he becomes your perfection. Where you are removed, he gives you access. Now you can have a house in the kingdom. Now you can have a home and a name that is everlasting because you can have the name of Jesus who becomes your name. What do I do with this genocide? What do I do with this stuff? You need to be ready to take that. And as Christians, we need to be clear with the gospel. We need to be able to make the gospel absolutely clear when we present it. And so I can take genocide. Well, what about this genocide? You know what that's a picture of in the Old Testament, guys? Why God crushes the Canaanites and brings Israel as an implementation of his judgment? Because he warned the Canaanites for centuries and centuries that the way they killed their children in sacrificial rituals, the way they used their sexuality for whatever form they wanted to, to worship and do other evils, the way that they killed and murdered each other, the way that they stole from one another, the kind of slavery that they engaged in, the kind of bigotry and evil that they committed to their women and others, all the mess that they had created. He had warned them over and over and over again. The genocide that comes in that text, which isn't fully a genocide, that's a different point, is at least a picture of God's using an implement, an instrument, usually a nation, to judge sin. When a nation becomes so sinful, God will judge it. God hates sin that much. Oh, and it wasn't just the Canaanites. He did it to Israel. Just keep reading your Bible. God's not going to just focus on one group. No, it's anywhere that he sees sin. He's going to punish it. He's going to crush it. And yet here's the strange thing. When we come to Jesus, here's a man without sin. And God punishes and crushes him with our sin so that he deals with it finally. And so we can go from genocide to Jesus because what happens here is God's hatred of sin. And what, God, what happens here is God's love to us. He doesn't want to crush us in our sin. He wants to save us from it. Because if God came without Jesus, all humanity would die. That's the picture. That's how bad sin is. What about slavery? I mean, first of all, don't import your American slavery into the Bible. Those are two different things. The chattel slavery of America is a far eviler thing than the, the, the slavery you find in the Bible. But it's still slavery. So what do we say about this? It's actually a picture. It's a picture of humanity's enslavement to sin. We're all slaves, bound up to our genetic heritage, our whims and desires, so that when you're left to yourself, you will chase them down. You may fight against them, but you have no power in and out of sight of yourself to be able to overcome the fallenness of your soul. We are chained and enslaved to sin. And yet there's a strange part when the seven-year jubilee, that when you hit that 70th year, all the slaves are set free. What is this? When is the slavery going to be set free? When are we going to be free from our chains and sin? Except that Jesus came, bore our sin on the cross, broke our chains, set us free. And now as we follow him, you will walk in further freedom every single day as you walk with Jesus, as he sets you free from the proclivities and the damage of our brokenness in our souls. 
You go from slavery to Jesus because Jesus solves our basic slavery problem, our slavery to sin. And we can go to the gospel no matter what objection is being brought to us because God is picturing human evil in his reality. And God's loved us so much. He sought us out so much. He seeks you seekers so much. He gives an answer to give you the opportunity to enter into a future utopia that's coming when Jesus returns. One in which there is no sin, there is no slavery, save our desire to serve Jesus because he's given us access to that eternity. And Philip takes this message and he brings it to him. And it revealed to this man who sought desperately to be of the house of God an opportunity. But just as God seeks you as a seeker, you have to respond. You have to respond. See, what goes on now is that Philip picks it up. He, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom do I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Likely they'd come into Gaza at this point. And we go from 36 to 38. He says, he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and he passed through the, preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so he doesn't stop preaching no matter where he finds himself. That's kind of just Philip. That's supposed to be the church. We're all supposed to be doing this, preaching wherever we find ourselves. But this eunuch has been transformed. He goes away rejoicing. But there's because he made a choice. Now, notice in your Bibles here real quick, it says 36 and then 38. Last, so I know we got new math, but what comes after 36? Come on, easy one. What? No, 38. It's right there. Just kidding. 37 is found actually in your, in your notes at the bottom. It's not likely in Dr. Luke's original manuscript. Um, we, we have a lot of documents to show us kind of what isn't really there. And this has been put down there because it likely was added in the early church time period because they felt like it was important. It was when their hearts um, to, important to them. And so it goes on to say, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And what you see here is a response. The response is, I believe that Jesus can be my completion. While I'm missing what, is, what can enable me to be part of Israel's people, I trust that Jesus can complete me. I trust that Jesus can heal me. I trust that in the resurrection, he will deal with my sin. I trust that he makes me right with God. I trust that as I walk with him, I can be more like him and I can love humanity. This is the confession that each of us need to make. There is a decision that you have to have. If you're seeking God and this message has come to you, God is telling you, then come and trust my son, Jesus, and then get baptized. That's what this man does next. It's not a spiritual baptism. It was a spiritual baptism. He could have simply told him, oh, you don't need to get in the water. Don't worry about it. Spirit of God comes upon you, you're baptized spiritually. Nope. It's not a spiritual baptism. It's a, it's a physical manifestation of the heart change that's happened. They stepped into the water and they revealed what God had done in his life. He died to his old life. He died to his old ways. He died to what, was, what he held on to and he came to life to live after Jesus Christ. Which means if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. I don't think there's an exception. You said, well, time out, Greg. I was baptized as a baby. 
by my parents. I, you know, I do, I really feel like if I was to get baptized now, it would be an insult to their baptism. I want to say timeout. I don't think that's true. Your parents baptized you for what purpose? From their faith that you might be a follower of Jesus. That's why parents baptize their children. Now that you become a Christian, you're following Jesus. Honor that baptism by being baptized now with your faith. It empowers that one. It becomes the fruit of what your parents had always hoped in your original baptism. Confirm it by being baptized in Christ now from your faith. Or maybe you're sitting there going, hey, I've been, you know, I've been a Christian for 15 years. I've never been baptized. Don't really think I need to show it now. Hey, you know, everybody knows. Okay. I believe baptism is something you do as soon as you can. So if you've been a Christian for 15 years and you haven't had the chance yet, Easter's as soon as you can. Do it now. There's no need to wait. I could be snarky like Brent who will look at you and say, how long as a Christian do you have to be until disobedience is okay? Ow. But I'm not going to guilt trip you like that. I'll let Brent do that. Uh, no, I want to inspire you. I want to give you this sense that what, what is the picture now after 15 years what, what, that you have this opportunity now to stand up before people and humble yourself saying, yeah, I haven't done this yet, but I am so serious about following my Lord. Even after 15 years, though I didn't do it at the beginning, I'll do it now. I love him that much. I'm willing to show him, him that much. You're like, but I'm so scared of crowds. Fine. We'll come to your house. We'll put a doughboy up or something. We'll dunk you there. That's okay. But really, I want to encourage you, you should be baptized. It is the picture of that transformation. It is the picture of our humbling ourselves before God and depending upon the life of Jesus. And if you never received that, if you haven't done that, I want to give you the chance right now. There is a green card in your seat in front of you. I don't think we should have any excuses left, but you should be able to grab that green card if you've not been baptized, pull it out, write the word baptism at the bottom, give us your information. We'll get you signed up for Easter. We'll get you a slot. And we'll get to celebrate. What a great time to get baptized. When you're celebrating these, you're going to walk in the life of Christ. We're celebrating his resurrection, the very life that we're walking in. I'd encourage you guys, don't pass us up. Grab that card, drop it in the box, or if you've got your app open, flip it right over to baptism, sign up right now. Don't wait on it. This is the opportunity. Now, all that being said, I want to take a minute here and speak to those of you who are seeking. So would you bow your heads with me real quick? If you're here and you resonate with the seeking, you long for that eternity, you long for that opportunity to be a part of a people in which war will be done, which the suffering and the disease and the mess of life will be overcome. I want to give you an opportunity to realize that that's found in Jesus Christ. In his life, in his body, he took human evil and he destroyed it. And by following him, he transforms us into a people that are able to know God, walk with God, and emulate his life on earth. But you have to begin that journey of following Jesus. You have to trust that he's made you and God right. And that's the beginning of that journey. And I want to give you a chance to receive that today. It's not something you earn. It's something that God just gives you. It's something that God offers to you, an opportunity to be a disciple so that you can follow Jesus.
all the way into that utopia, that kingdom of God, as it's called. And if you know you need to start that journey today and you've never done it before, will you give, will you take this time and do that and give me the honor of letting me know by putting your hand up, you're saying, that's me. I'm ready to begin that journey of following Jesus. I'm ready to let him fill in the gaps to make me right with God, to make me perfect where I've been imperfect, to clean up my sin where otherwise my sin is taking me down. If that's you, just put your hand up. I wanna walk you through a prayer, give you an opportunity to connect with your God. Just pray this with me right here. Just go, God, I know that I have sinned. I know I'm broken and I'm imperfect. Please, please let me follow Jesus. I I receive him now. And I ask now that you would lead me and teach me how to follow you all the days of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.